Yo, yo, this is Sid Shaw. Welcome to Chasing the White Rabbit. Every week, I'm going to talk to incredible people who've jumped down the rabbit hole and changed their personal or professional lives without knowing what was on the other side. So I'm, uh, I'm super excited right now to introduce my next guest. She's an old friend that we kind of lost touch and, and reconnected very recently. Her name's Pia Lindstrom. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about her before we launch into this interview. So we met in about 2002, 2003. She had just recently moved from Sweden and moved to L.A. And within a year, she started something called Exini, which essentially completely disrupted the L.A. nightlife scene till about 2005, 2006. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about that in the interview. From there, she basically had every single contact for, with every single brand and A-list celebrity because of what she created. She worked at Google for a while. She worked and ran a marketing company for a while. And really what she's been doing is running her own company called Cult Collective. And the Cult Collective is basically a culmination of her, her interest, all of her relationships with some of the biggest brands, investors, banks, etc. in the world. And what she does is she puts deals together that she finds very interesting, everything from entertainment to cannabis to, to marketing opportunities to celebrity opportunities. And so... Without further ado, I'm going to welcome Pia to the show. I'm super excited. Thank you. Thanks, Sid. Yeah. So, Pia, I mean, so <laughs> this is really funny. We're in a studio right now, which is a building that was the Exini headquarters, and you haven't been here in 15 years. I mean, how crazy is that? <laughs> I actually thought that this was something you did for fun, <laughs> just to, like, mess with me. I, I'm still, I'm, I'm really shocked. So, let's... Let's backtrack a little bit. You moved here from Sweden in early 2000s. Yeah. So um, I also want to clarify yeah. one thing. So Exini was also created by Rob Perry yes. and Michael Sutton. So That's I just want right. to make sure uh, yes. that I will give we all get the credit. Everybody will get the credit, right. <laughs> Plus all the amazing people that were part of the team. Um, yes, I moved it from Sweden, uh, not really knowing anyone. It was either in New York or L.A. And how old were you? I was probably 20... 21, okay. 2021, okay. around so there. So really young, and you didn't know, really know what you were doing. I didn't even know. I had a bike and a, and a, and a small, like, I was roommates with, with two other guys, and um, I basically didn't really know what I wanted to do. And you were here in West L.A., Beverly um, Hills. And no, I was uh, I was actually living in Santa Monica at the time, and, um, and how Exini kind of started was I had one of my first job was to work in a model management company. Okay. And it wasn't like a really nice, it was like not the A, B list. It was like the C, like playmates who had kind of had their prime and it was like the C list girls. Okay. But they were still really pretty and they still made money for, for those. So I, of course, didn't know anything about the business. So I was assisting them. And through that, I uh, met one of our models her name is Lisi, and Lisi then introduced me to Rob, who um, was one of the main yeah, guys of Exini, right? right? He was really the one who who had the idea, and um, and then me and Rob connected, and with my force of hot girls and his savviness of being an attorney, and then of course later on Michael came in with the promotion skills. Right. And we we created Exini, which was this amazing fun we kind of called it 
roving social house, like exini means gifts given by hosts in Latin. It was created for women by women originally, so it was supposed to be like a female force. But we, I mean, it ended up being a mix of kind of everything. And also we had a big charitable component with it as well, which every weekend we would do a celebrity and like a charity to kind of raise awareness. And we basically created the first um, outlet for influencers. So imagine like a Soho house with like the Instagram without the Instagram. So Absolutely. We were, I mean, this is pre-Soho house, pre-arts club. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'll just add add to Pia's description of it. It was a roving social country club, essentially. You had to be a member. The members were typically A-list celebrities, kind of tastemakers, and me. I probably should not have been a member, but I was because of a common friend of ours who worked with Pia, actually. And every Saturday, there would be a new party, which you would learn about at, you know, noon that day. You'd get a text and you show up to an epic mansion or a movie studio and women were in for free. It was A-list celebrities. So, I, you know, I remember I was, you know, taking a piss next to Leonardo DiCaprio once and, you know, I've spoken to... You know, my wife was friends with Jessica Alba back then and, you know, and, and all of that. And and then it was always catered by the best chefs and always the top shelf alcohol. And the most unique part of this is that it started at 12 and ended at 5, which if you know anything about L.A. nightlife is not possible. And so talk about that a little bit. I mean, you, you guys really changed the game and disrupted the business model. I mean, there's a whole new way of thinking about things. So to talk about how, how did that idea come about and then how did you even execute that? That's really difficult to do. Um, so uh, we, it was something that's, that's kind of evolved by itself. We, we saw that there was a, a market for that particular side of, of the business of nightlife. And we actually originally started at 10 p.m. And 10 p.m., we would get a lot of backlash from a lot of the nightclub owners because we would basically empty up the nightclubs. Right. So um, I won't say which nightclubs, but pretty much the same guys are running all the big nightclubs now. Um, so they were upset with us, and they would send SWAT teams to us to try to shut us down and do fire, this type of, yeah. yeah. Fire chief and all that. So we, I mean, they would come with, like, riot gear and, like, full-on SWAT teams. And, and um, one time, I believe, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger was there, and I think it was, like, right after he had become, or right before he was a senator. It was, like, one of those uh, governor meant, um it was it was like a really fun interaction night, but um, it, let's just say that um, midnight to five seems to be like the right time to do an Absolutely. after hours if you're going to do an after hours. And also because we didn't we didn't sell anything, we were able to kind of circumvent the... because it was a membership club and you weren't selling alcohol. You were able to yes. deal with the two a.m. cutoff. Exactly. So that's how we started. And then they changed the law because um, alcohol and beverage control decided that um, the membership itself was a sale for the alcohol, even though it wasn't directly made for wow. the alcohol. So there was a lot of court things and things like that. Um, but I still have, you know, an ace up my sleeve, which I know how to still get around this stuff. So I could still potentially, for all you guys, <laughs> create another Xini. Good, which I think I think L.A. needs. There might be a sign here that is like, this there's is a, a sign. reason. We're back. We're back where it all started, you know. Yeah. So Xini basically was created by a, a bunch of us that wanted to have fun. And we ended up starting one night at a place that Paris had lent us. And it was Paris, like a Hilton. Hilton. Uh, 
that had it was like a perfume launch that she had done and and it was on Wilshire and um we saw this cool venue that we could kind of have for really cheap so one night I was a Friday night we said okay great let's see how many people show up it was it was no payment or anything you just see if people would show this is yeah. the time of the flip I phone remember. I the was Motorola there. Yeah, flip phone I was there so we started and we're like around and we started 10 so around like midnight we had like 200 people so we were like this is amazing at like 2 a.m we had like 500 people like oh my god this is like the best party ever this is so crazy and amazing at like 2 30 again we have like two security guards like two bartenders and like one bus boy and then whatever i think we bought like three thousand dollars worth of alcohol and like two staff members that was probably gone <laughs> so <laughs> at like two we're like why don't we just keep it open a little bit longer it was more like our thought like why don't we just keep it a little see people seems to be coming so we just kept open and all of a sudden the security guard comes and he's like hey um on Wilshire is no one, there's no traffic really around that time. It's like, it's like where LACMA is kind of that area. And so he's like, hey, there must be like some sort of concert or accident because there's like hundreds of cars go on, on Wilshire. There's like some sort of stop. And I'm like, that's so weird. I don't know like what concert it would have been. Um, or like, why would people be driving at 2 a.m. when they should be coming from Hollywood, right? Yeah. And they're, and they're driving um, like, Fairfax and to Wilshire and it was like it was just crowded with cars and then we realized they were on their way to us and we're like oh my god so all of a sudden uh, between like two and and five I think we ended up with like maybe two thousand people we didn't know because we had no clickers at the time we I mean I'm estimating just ballparking but so we're like okay this is really successful and then we're like let's do it the next night over again so again I think we had again we were like not having a budget. We didn't have a lot of money. We just basically had to like bootstrap it and go to Costco and, you know, try to pour vodka out of these huge 1.575 liters. They come with like gulps of yeah, vodka. Right. We didn't even have the the stoppers or whatever. So it was hard to do. And also there, our bartenders really weren't bartenders. They were just hot <laughs> girls who just knew how to pour something into a cup, right? right. But since everything was free, those girls were making like three, four, five thousand dollars a night because they were just getting tipped really heavily, right? So all the girls always wanted to be like the bar, uh, the girls who did the bar um, table service. Right. So then the following night, I think we had like four thousand. The next Saturday, the so we had Friday and Saturday, and then we're like, okay, so Rob and I, this is right before, and Michael came along. He's like, maybe we should just start raising money for this because I think that. We there's have something, something there. here. Yeah, there's something that people want. Yeah, and that we, we were able to raise uh, money from uh, TCW and Pacific Capital Group. So they were the ones who, I don't think they really cared too much about that it was a nightclub, but I think that they're more interested in meeting women and yeah. having a good time. So because we were not asking for like the minimum of 10 million, it was, I think we raised like 1.6 the first round and 1.9 and we returned investment, I think, within nine months or wow. something. So so we, we did really well. And then we ended up with one room in this building and the entire third floor was ours. And I believe we had half of the second floor, not this this room, but the room next door. I'm still, it's just wild. I can't <laughs> believe we're back, back yeah. in that same place. <laughs> so Exini uh, was then born. And so how you were accepted was um, you were approved by, you were invited by one and approved by a board. And the board was comprised of um, kind of like a regular board of, of like astute members or people who were in the same mindset of what we were doing, but brought something to it that wasn't just a rich person or, or you know, something like that. 
And then that board would then approve members uh, and people would have to apply and then send a picture of themselves. Women did actually pay. Not every woman got in for free, which I didn't really know. That was really Rob's call. It wasn't mine. But I believe we started it in the beginning for free. And then we we had like the founding members. limited limited the I think number. I had the founding members of like maybe 300 that were free and then they were basically so Raman was probably inviting you yeah. as as like you know come on in and and that was his quota to fill right yep. and basically that's how it started and then we we kind of evolved from there and I think women pay like 375 and then so yeah. let, let's before we go into more of Xeni let's talk <laughs> about your 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 kind of what was what you were thinking you're 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 young you're you're still relatively new here two or three years and you're now throwing really hot parties like what what are you thinking right now are you just like i'm having fun let's just see where this goes are you actually thinking there's a business behind it what what was the thought process going on in your head that you're you're raising money from private equity i mean this is all this all (laughs) feels like really fast and a lot of different jumps right so what was going on in your head so when I obviously had worked in this kind of subpar model agency making $500 a week and it wasn't, you know, the best job ever. And uh, I was really bored and there was like no, obviously no future. But as any 20 year old, typically uh, we don't know what we want to do. And we're always like, oh, should I do this or that? So when I met Rob, I was like, wow, this is like a cool opportunity and I have the time. Let me just see what it is. And so there was no real thought to it other than I thought it seemed like a really cool idea. Because there's a lot of weird, shifty people in L.A. also in the nightlife scene, right? So, like, how did you you kind of see through that also? I I didn't actually see through it because I was very novice at the time. So I thought everyone was, like, Swedish people and, like, really good, nice people. So I had no idea that that there was, like, some sort of issue with with integrity. (laughs) And morals. Um, but I learned very quickly about that. I also had no idea how to throw a party or that you needed permits and uh, things like that. So so Rob was really instrumental of, of being an attorney um, from Chicago. He he kind of gave me my first crash course on, on investments and, and how that how that would work. So that's how I learned about raising money and and I mean it was extremely difficult because nobody understood what we were doing and and it was just like are you doing a nightclub it doesn't make any sense but we were able to do so um in in a way that that seemed to work so suddenly you're in a room with a bunch of gray haired (laughs) men and asking money a couple million bucks for this roving nightclub concept yeah and I'm uh, obviously 5'11 Swedish girl I don't fit in that room at all and I had Especially to, in the early 2000s. Oh, right? yeah, of I course. Mean, now it's different, but... Yeah, yeah. so it was very, um, a little bit different. So I, I was more to be like, don't speak, really just sit there. And I wasn't sure if I was just more to, to be like pretty to sit there <laughs> or if I actually had something to But Jeez. I didn't really care because right. I thought that that was like just the way it was supposed to be done. Okay. Again, from Learning Sweden, process, not yeah. never been. Um, so that's really um, how I learned to jump into to finance and, and seeing really... How do I take a product to really mold it into something that can be amazing? And and I truly believe with pretty much any background, if you have a brain and some street smarts and you can just kind of put things together and, and really understand the culture of, of the other side, which I learned as well. So that's really gave me a really good, solid foundation to how I operate today. When did you realize that you were taking a big jump? Well, um, 
as this was became... It after, was it this, like, after the first one or two parties, or was it when you started raising money, or what? It was when they actually gave us money. I actually couldn't believe they actually gave us money, because <laughs> I was like, what? They actually... <laughs> and also, for me, a million dollars or whatever, it was like, the, I've never Insane. even Absolutely. seen a million dollars. Right. You know, so for me, I was like this must be insane. Like, why would someone give us that much money? Like, it, and for, I, I didn't understand that a million dollars is literally nothing. Right. <laughs> so I was, at that time, I was like, okay, this, this could actually be a company. And, and so I, I basically dove in and, and worked like every day of the week, including I'm the one producing all the events. So I'm up 24 hours, 72 hours, sometimes three days in a row, because sometimes we would have it on Friday and on Sundays we would have like a pool party. I remember those. Yeah. Or sometimes we would have Friday and Saturday. Or it just it, it was like Grammys weekend. We would do like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and we would just like roll it out. And and a lot of the big record labels will come and be like, "Hey, produce our Grammy party. Hey, produce our Oscar party. Or produce this." So a lot of times we were collaborating with different brands. I launched Bing.com and Zune, all these things from Microsoft, like various Microsoft products that. They wouldn't listen to us about how to make things cool. They always wanted to do it like the Microsoft way. Mm. Uh, we saw uh, how that worked. Yeah, so yeah. it wasn't very successful, but but um, but we were able to work a lot with like different brands who wanted to be cool. So was, imagine like if Instagram existed with a some sort of Soho House component to it, and then you basically moved it around. Yeah. So, but the great thing is, is that there was no videos and photos, so there was. Live was basically your influencer, anything live. So, and we started with having like Cirque du Soleil performers before Cirque du Soleil existed, really. We were doing like. I don't know if you know this. My wife actually performed at one of them as well. She did? She did, yes. Oh my God. Yeah, was it did. like a, as an acrobat or something? Yeah, no, so her, she had a. Uh, kind of a, a Bollywood troupe. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, right. I that booked. Was, yeah, 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 yeah. So I booked that, that was show. Her her, that was her troupe. So um, that's amazing. amazing. I remember because yeah. that was a really, was really like good. a thing. It was like was a good. big. Is that how you met her? No, but that's we, we were dating then. So that was you know, okay. Yeah, okay, yeah, so yeah. maybe you're the one who like, hey, we should do a Bollywood theme. <laughs> <laughs> I might have put that in someone's yeah, ear. <laughs> and it was great because we had, of course, we had to always remember have a different theme, which I was like running. So at some point, it became like the red theme and the white things yeah. I just ran out of ideas and then so Xeni you know grew for a little bit and then obviously I think and you, you know better than me but it felt like a lot of the nightlife owners were rebelling and causing problems for you because you essentially took away their old business sure right and so then Xeni kind of slows down runs into some trouble and but you're still Pia you have all these great relationships You've developed, you know, an investor track record where you've returned money now, and now you have this company called the Cult Collective, mm-hmm. which kind of does what you would do, you know, if, if it was a company, essentially. Sure. Right? right? And so talk a little bit about some of the opportunities that you're seeing and creating that, you know, you would not have access to if you didn't take the jump uh, down the rabbit hole for Exini. Wow. I mean, Exini, there's love and hate with it because I, I, it was really really difficult work because I was also the only one producing and I had like I think one assistant and it was incredibly hard to to be able to maneuver all that stuff um but through Xeni and and every time even when I see you or even when I walk around and people know what Xeni is people just like light up and they're like this is the best experience of my life I was like (laughs) it made my world and it's this is the same everywhere I go. Everyone is so excited about it. I, I think I've gotten, I don't even know, 20 people who are like trying to get me to start it again. It's, it's, um, 
It's a lot of fun. It was. I would invest. Yeah, sure. Half of LA. I probably wouldn't have any problem (laughs) opening that thing. And so from that, I I got to know people, um, and uh, and also one of our clients was uh, Goldman Sachs. Uh, Another one was Ron Burkle, who's now the owner of Soho House, Mm -hmm. and um, and a lot of our corporate clients came from like Deutsche Bank, Goldman, you know, various. I mean, various companies. So, and the people I worked with then. Then obviously rose in ranks, and now they're you know chairman of com- you know chairman of companies or partners of companies. So if you have a fifteen or twenty year track record with with people that know you from a social environment all the way up, so it's really easy for me to pick up the phone call and they'll actually meet with me or text with me or, I mean, really just there is no no pressure of anything, and they really ha- want to hear what I have to say. And a lot of times, what I've done is that. I call myself a little bit like a creative McKinsey because I come from, I consult a lot of times and try to see like how do I make a company better in a sense or I'll go, for example, I've been working a lot in the Middle East where I work with governments and, and like, I mean, they had no contact. I mean, they're the kingdom of of, uh, of the UAE and, and they had could not get a hold of Google, right? which I thought was really odd since Google exists in Dubai. And I and I try well, to reach out. How, they didn't know how to get a hold of the right person. Well, I try to reach out to the people in Dubai and Google, and they would not respond. So then I have to go like all the way up the ladder, and you know, dealing with with yeah, the number three of the company, and then it got down that way. But but I think that those are the type of things that those the relationships, and as long as you you only as good as your last job or your last project. So your reputation is all about what you can bring to something. And I've been very careful with, with doing the right thing and always deliver. And if I can't deliver, I always explain things. And I'm very good with people. And I always try to help no matter what. So whether it's in Hong Kong or Dubai or L.A. or P- if people are trying to raise funds, I'm like, well, let me, let, me look at your, let me look at your business plan and let's try to figure it out. And maybe your idea is just not going to work. It's not feasible or not feasible in this particular market. And so there was a service element as well as a business development. So it's it's always been in a lot of tech-heavy type environments. Um, so, you know, if you look back at the last 15 years, you know, obviously a lot of people think all the dots are connected. But really, you know, a dot leads to another dot leads absolutely. to another dot. You know, in hindsight now, if you look back at that first real big chance you took with Rob and Exenian, kind of where it's taking you now. How do you reflect upon that? So what, you know, what would you tell somebody else who's young, you know, early 20s, who kind of doesn't know, they know they want to do something, they know they want to do something big, they don't really know what to do. How do you, what would you tell them about the steps to take or, or the framework to have in their mind so that they can kind of make the jump with the eyes wide open? One of the things that I, when I meet young people, I always hear the same thing. They don't know how to do it and they are too afraid of doing it or they don't have the self-confidence. I can see just how they are like as a person. worried about failure or worried about yeah. what other people would think. Yeah, and 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 I was the type of person who, since I didn't really know anyone here, and, and this is just still me today, like, what what's the worst that can happen? So what I fail? And, like, I'll work at Starbucks if everything fails. And it's it's I never thought about it as, like, I shouldn't try it. I I always done things I love to do. I absolutely love. So my advice would be just do it. Don't think about it too hard. Just 
go and try something that you think is going to be cool and might be fun. It may not be financially viable for the long term, but you're going to learn a lot of valuable lessons that might, might help you. Lead you to the next thing or the yeah, next thing Yeah, in, in a corporate viable. job or, or, or the relationships that you wouldn't have had later. I mean, like before Paul Allen died, I was really good friends with him. And like, I wouldn't have gotten that relationship hadn't I known my friend Chris. So, but I would go to the movies with him. Like we were really, we were really in good friends on terms. And he would always talk about like cool next generation technology. And you just never know. I, I like that perspective. And, and you said it so genuinely is that, you know, you never really thought that failure was a bad thing. No. You just, you just, you didn't care what people thought. You didn't really think it was a bad thing. You're like, hey, I'm going to try it in worst case scenario. I'll work at Starbucks, which, you know, which means that you can still survive. Yeah. Right? And, and so I think a lot of people, they get so overwhelmed with the thought of failing or the thought of saying something and then like it not happening and what people would think, especially the younger generation. They're so self-conscious. So mm-hmm. I think it's really important to to have this like very natural way of thinking about, which is so what? Big deal. I'll try it again. I'll keep on trying until something eventually hits. Yeah. Just like Nike, just do it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, so Pia, I really appreciate your time. It was really good seeing you again. And it was really interesting seeing you again here in this building. (laughs) I'm like, I'm still blown away by that. Um, Mm. But thank you for joining us. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Okay. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to Chasing the White Rabbit. You can learn more at chasingthewhiterabbit.fm. And you can also find us on Instagram and Twitter as well. We're streaming on all platforms. Love to get your comments, repost. Hit me up on Instagram at Sitshaw Live. Please retweet and like on all the platforms. Thank you very much. <laughs>